wrote much more uh, about the Great Awakening, and you can read all of those things online, but this much is true. Nothing quite like the Great Awakening of 1741 and the years that followed uh, has ever really come across our nation, even to this day, and yet still we pray and pray regularly for awakening, for revival, for a, a fresh movement of Christ and the gospel in our nation. In Acts chapter 19 this morning, we're going to see an awakening in the city of Ephesus, the great ancient city of Ephesus, as Paul preaches there. Now, the city of Ephesus itself in its day, in the day in which we see uh, Paul ministering and preaching there and the church growing, was a major city. Uh, It lied, again, on major sea trading routes. It was a port city uh, in its day. Uh, Now the Mediterranean has uh, uh, regressed some from Ephesus. So Ephesus actually sits more inland today than it did in Paul's day. But many ships would go through there, major port of uh, commercial traffic there in Ephesus. But also Ephesus was the home to uh, the sort of uh, major uh, uh, worship of the Greek goddess Artemis or the Roman goddess Diana. In fact, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus is among one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. It was massive in its structure and uh, multiple thousands of people worshiping there each and every day. Now, the uh, cult of Artemis, if you want to put it that way, um, was worshipped. So uh, the cult of Artemis worshipped Artemis in Ephesus as a goddess of fertility. Now, outside of Ephesus, it's interesting that Artemis is not usually uh, connected with fertility, but with chastity and with other things. So in Ephesus, even the cult of Artemis somewhat perverted or changed how she was perceived, but she was seen as a fertility goddess in Ephesus. And along with worshipping fertility gods and goddesses were the practices of cultic prostitution and those sorts of things that go with it. So Ephesus, while a major city, was a majorly perverse and also immoral city. We'll find here, though, in Acts chapter 19, a movement in Ephesus take place, a gospel movement take place in Ephesus. And there we'll see in our passage today that Jesus alone, Jesus alone is the source of true spiritual awakening because he has and only he has all power to overturn spiritual darkness and to redeem human social structures. The Great Awakening that swept through the United States was not because Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher, not because Whitfield and Wesley and others were, were, were great preachers or particularly special men of God, but because the power of Jesus was in and upon these men and in their ministries. As we look at what true spiritual awakening looks like from Ephesus chapter 19, I would hope that we should reorient our own thinking about revival and awakening. Not around methods, not around special weeks of emphasis, not around particular crusades or major events, but that we would reorient our thinking of revival and awakening specifically around the power of Jesus. And that we would change our practice, that we would even change our prayers for bringing revival, bringing awakening in churches and in our culture to working toward awakening of human hearts. So we don't, just want to, we don't just want to enliven the church and fill seats on Sunday. We want human hearts to be changed from hating God to loving God, from being separated from Him in sin to united to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. As we read our text this morning, Acts chapter 19, 10 through 41, I'd ask that you'd stand with me as we honor God 
by reading his word. We last left uh, Paul in Ephesus reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This he did uh, for two years. We read in verse 10, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, leapt upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having, been sent into, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Luke is a master of understatement, and he uses that yet again. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Now these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only in that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together." Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. 
But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. God, we pray you bless us as we read and study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated this morning. A true spiritual awakening takes place in the city of Ephesus. And we see from what happens in Ephesus at least five characteristics of true spiritual awakening that will be true of, uh, that are true of the spiritual awakening in Acts, but also will be true of any spiritual awakening anywhere in the world that it happens. First and foremost, true spiritual, true spiritual awakening is uh, first preceded by the gospel. It is preceded by the gospel. We see this in verses 10 and 20 of our passage today. Both of these verses tell us that the word of Christ reached all of the residents of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, and that it continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Church, this is one constant throughout all of Acts that we have seen up to this point, and we'll continue to see the preaching of the gospel. The declaration that God who created everything that we see and know, that same God has made it possible for us, his creatures who have rejected him, to be brought near to him again. The gospel is ultimately, friends, the gospel is ultimately about being made right with God. And it always has been. The good news of the gospel is not only that we can be right with God, but it is about the specific and perfect way that God has solved the problem of our sin. The problem of our sin, the problem that our sin creates is death. The solution is life. The life with God that we have rejected by our own sin is made newly available to us as Jesus, the Son of God, died on a Roman cross to make payment for our sin, who rose from the dead in triumph over sin and death. Jesus himself says in John chapter 3 that our sin has not just made our souls numb to God, but that our sin has killed us spiritually. And to become a citizen of the kingdom, we, not, we, we, we must not be just reminded of who God is, but Jesus says we must be born again. Spiritual awakening, dear friends, is the process of going from spiritual sleep to wakefulness, from spiritual death to life. And this life that Jesus gives is only known to us in the gospel that he is the center of and the gospel that is preached in Ephesus and all throughout Asia. Know this, church. There will be no spiritual awakening where the gospel is absent. There will be no spiritual awakening where the gospel is, is uh, mitigated or minimized. So then also understand this and, and embrace this truth today, that churches who long for spiritual awakening must be a vocal gospel presence, a vocal gospel force in their homes, in their churches, in their communities, in their workplaces. Jesus has commanded us to make disciples by being his witnesses in the world. We know this from Matthew 28 and Acts 1.8. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And God has ordained that no sinner should ever come to life in Christ apart from hearing of Christ, repenting of their sins, and trusting in him as Lord. The saying, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, is as foolish a saying as feed the hungry at all times, and if necessary, use food. I challenge us to consider today the impact that would be had if the 140, 150 or so of us in this room this morning were all verbally sharing the gospel this week. 
What if all of us were verbally sharing the gospel with those who do not know Christ this week? If all of us committed to sharing the gospel with just one person this week, we would easily ensure that 150 new people who did not know Christ had heard of the promise of life that comes by faith in Jesus. And if only 2% of those who we share the gospel with this week, only 2% of those who heard the gospel believed the gospel, entrusted their lives to Christ, we would welcome three new people to the family of Christ in, in seven days hence. And if that happened every week, church, if every week the 150 or so of us that gather together to worship Christ were verbally sharing the gospel with those in our communities over the course of a year, if we, each of one of us, just shared the gospel once with one new person each week, 7,800 new people in Albuquerque would hear the gospel. And if only 1% of those, let's get really conservative, if only 1% of those who we share the gospel with respond in faith to Jesus, we would celebrate the new life of 78 people in the course of a year as they turn and trust Jesus in faith. Let's get even more conservative. What if only one half of 1% trust Jesus as a result of our gospel sharing with 7,800 people in a year? Still 39 new believers in Jesus Christ. Awakenings happen, church, when the gospel is frequently spoken. Let us be frequent gospel speakers. True spiritual awakenings are preceded by the gospel, but secondly, they are empowered by God. Verses 11 through 16, here Luke tells us, first, that it was God who was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul in Ephesus. There's no question for us here as to the source of the miracles taking place in Acts. It is God who empowers this global gospel movement through his faithful servants and the apostles, I'm here at this point reminded of the prayer of the believers in Acts chapter 4 when they prayed to God asking for him to give them greater boldness to be vocal proponents, vocal declarers of the gospel. They say, while you, God, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Paul is a servant of Jesus through whom God is using to bring miraculous things to come about, healings and other things in the uh, city of Ephesus. Now, the miracles that are performed in these verses are dramatic, really dramatic, such that even as we read cloths and aprons, perhaps the sweat cloths and the aprons that Paul wore during his tent making, even those things that had touched Paul were taken to those who are sick and demon-possessed, and they're being healed. Now, there's no power, we know, in the sweat or the skin of Paul. There's no power in, in his perspiration that is somehow transferred into these items that brings about healing. But there is, and we know, power in God who often heals in accordance with people's faith in the name and the person of Jesus. We see it happen in the Gospels. We see it happen in Acts. We see it happen here again in Acts 19. In this passage, friends, Luke is simply describing what is happening. He's not prescribing or condoning the practice of selling healing handkerchiefs, okay? There are some in Ephesus, though, there are some in the city who think that Jesus' name does work kind of like a magic formula. Like like if I I just take the name of Jesus, I I can just shout it out and magical things will happen, miraculous things will happen. Specifically, we see these seven Jewish exorcists who call themselves the sons of Sceva. Uh, They take to employ Jesus' name in their exorcisms there in Ephesus. Now, these seven guys are somewhat shrouded in mystery to us today. We don't really know where they came from. Neither do we really know who their father, Sceva, is. 
We, we, we do know he wasn't a Jewish high priest in the technical temple sense, even though, Sceva, uh, even though Luke refers to him as a high priest. Perhaps he was a self-proclaimed high priest. Maybe he had some priestly ancestry. But we know nothing more of this guy, Sceva, and very little else of these exorcists who are his sons, if you will. For that matter, we don't even know just how Jewish these exorcists are. We do know that magicians and exorcists of that day would attempt magical gibberish incantations using collected names of powerful people or local deities to try to drive out demons. The thought was, if I know the right God or I know the right authority and I use the right name in the right way, then uh, I can have command over evil spirits. And so these exorcists seem to be doing the same thing. They see that there's power associated with the name of Jesus, and so they take upon themselves the name of Jesus and their magical incantations to try to pull evil spirits out of people. Now, when they attempt to do this in Ephesus on a certain possessed man, we have one of the most humorous, I think, events in all of Scripture. When they try to attempt to use Jesus' name to overpower an evil spirit, the result for them is both disastrous and demoralizing. They say to this demon-possessed man or to the demon that is possessing this man, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, it's clear by their command that they really don't know this Jesus whom Paul proclaims, but only that Paul preached his name and that that name seems to have some power associated with it in the city. Now, the demon possessing the man uh, on, on being commanded by these people who don't know Jesus looks at them and laughs. He says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize and respect, even as a servant of Jesus. But who are you to tell me to do anything? Notice, friends, that even the demon within the man recognizes the power of Jesus himself and the power of Jesus through Paul. And the demon would have submitted to either, but will not submit to these seven supposed Jewish exorcists who are truly ignorant of the person and the power of Jesus. And because they are powerless, because they are Christless, The demon attacks them, beats them senseless, strips them naked, and sends them running. One pastor has said, if when you started a fight, you were wearing pants, and when the fight is over, you are not wearing pants, you lost. (laughs) True spiritual awakenings are not just preceded by the gospel, but they are empowered by God. And that is what we see in these several verses. No true awakening, church, no true spiritual awakening, no true revival is ever powered by human methods, ever. Churches who long for spiritual awakening must be those then who are fully dependent, not upon themselves, not upon a charismatic preacher, not upon a method, but fully dependent upon Christ. The awakening at Ephesus, the reformation of the 1500s, the great awakening of the 1730s and 40s in colonial America, even the Billy Graham evangelistic crusades of the 20th century are all wonderful historic examples of spiritual awakening to the truth of the gospel by unbelievers. There are good examples, historic examples of revival in churches that repent of their calloused hearts and embrace Christ with fresh zeal and commitment. But none of these movements were ever powered by the preachers that were behind them. There's nothing in Martin Luther to empower an awakening or a reformation. There's nothing in the man, Jonathan Edwards, to empower an awakening. There's nothing in the man, Billy Graham, good and godly man as he was, to empower or bring about awakening. There's only power 
in the person of Jesus Christ. Every true movement of God that brings new life to lost sinners or fresh obedience to the recalcitrant Christian has only ever been and only ever will be driven by God himself. As humble and obedient men and women depend wholly on Jesus Christ. Listen, fancy stage lighting, a high-tech, immersive worship experience, sermons from charismatic preachers about living a better life and being victorious, whatever that means, may draw crowds. We could, next week, church, we could start doing everything that we know that will draw a crowd. We could have a three-ring circus in the parking lot every Sunday morning, and we could draw a crowd of thousands. We could do things that would ensure that thousands of people would come to our plot of land on a particular Sunday to watch us do what we do, to hear the songs that we might sing, to see the backflips we might do on stage. Don't ask me to do that. I can't. But if we are not dependent upon the power of God to change lives through the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we as Christians do not actually live Monday to Saturday, including Sunday, if we don't actually live like the gospel has powerfully changed our lives, all we'll do is draw a crowd. All we'll do is draw a crowd. There will be no awakening in the community. There will be no revival in this church or any church that does not depend upon the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus to turn hearts to himself. It is in our nature to look to people and to look to practices and to look to methods to bring about results. But it is not part of God's plan that we look to people and practices and and events to bring results, but that we look to himself that we look to Christ, that we rely upon the power of, Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit to bring the change that we know the gospel can bring. True spiritual awakening will never happen if we're depending upon our own efforts to do it. True spiritual awakening is preceded by the gospel. It's empowered by God. Thirdly, in verse 17, we see that true spiritual awakening is focused on worshiping Jesus Christ. What is truly ironic about the exorcists who are beaten and stripped naked by this demon is that even though the demonic power wins this scuffle, it is Jesus who wins the day. The crowds that are witnessing this event do not see the power of the demonic on display as he beats these seven guys senseless and strips them naked, so much as they see the recognition that the demon has of the power of Jesus. If even evil spirits fear this Jesus that Paul preaches... The Ephesians assume he must be powerful. This Jesus must be worthy of our worship. And as verse 17 says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This means his name was praised, his name was worshipped in that city. Where the gospel goes in the power of Christ, and where dependence upon him and, and where dependence upon him and the hearts of, uh, uh, the hearts of hearers uh, who hear the gospel will be turned to focus their worship upon Jesus. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the source. He is the goal of every true spiritual awakening. Whether it is someone coming to Christ for the first time or a church that has struggled for a long time and not having much life, coming to new life again. It is Jesus who will be at the center of it all. He's the source. He's the goal of every true spiritual awakening. 
And it is the sincere, humble, and authentic worship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that characterizes every true spiritual awakening. Know and understand this. The focus of every gospel movement is, every true gospel movement, is the Lord Jesus and nothing else. So then churches who long to see awakening in their congregations, who long to see new spiritual life in their communities, we at First West who want to reach our neighborhood and the nations with the gospel must exhibit an intense focus on the worship of Jesus. We must. We must. Here's perhaps one of the most unmistakable marks of a true spiritual awakening, that the name of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is extolled, he is praised, he is worshipped among the people. Sunday school teachers, you who serve faithfully week in and week out, teaching on Sunday mornings the word of God and helping those in your classes to apply it to their lives, do you want to see revival? Do you want to see awakening in your classes? Well, then you work hard to show your groups the beauty of Christ in the scriptures. Lead those that you meet with to study the Bible to worship Jesus and extol him as a result of having studied his word. Parents, do you long to see your children saved by faith in Christ? I do. Let us then prioritize the praise of Jesus and his loveliness in our homes. If our children do not know that Jesus is lovely and praiseworthy and exciting and worth praising... What motivation is them for is there for, for them to then worship him as we do, to love him as we say we do? Students, high schoolers, middle schoolers, college students, young adults, do you hunger for a movement of the gospel on your campus and in your workplace? Do you want to do something great for God in this life? Then create opportunities to speak about and to live out the realities of a life that has been changed by your risen Savior. If you're not showing it to the world, they will not see it in you. If, you are, if we are not giving compelling examples, compelling life illustrations of what a love of Christ looks like, how will we ever expect the world to love him like we do? I'll preach to myself a second, excuse me. Pastor, do you want revival in your church? Do you want awakening in your community? Then, brother, pastor, when you preach... When you lead, you show your people the matchless glory and eternal splendor of the Savior, who, as Paul says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. By being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Show them Jesus, Pastor. Show them Jesus, or else shut up and sit down. True spiritual awakening is preceded by the gospel. It's empowered by God. It is focused on the worship of Jesus Christ. But fourthly, we see in verses 18 and 19 of our text today that true spiritual awakening is marked by confession and repentance of sin. If you can't say amen, say ouch. You notice what happens in verses 18 and 19? Let's look at those briefly. Also, many of those who are now believers came. They were confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
as God empowers this gospel movement that is focused on the worship of the Lord Jesus, those who have newly, who have freshly for the first time come to faith in Christ, come now publicly confessing their sins and dragging into the light of God's grace all of their prior, prior sinful rebellion against him. In Ephesus, the chief sin that they are divulging, we read here, is the prior practice of magic. Now, Ephesus was not only a, a, a center of the uh, worship of the goddess Artemis, but Ephesus was a hotbed of sorcery in Paul's day. Even several magic textbooks and scrolls and parchments have been excavated from historic Ephesus, ancient e- Ephesus, that confirms this fact for us today. But when the power of God comes upon the Ephesians, as they believe the gospel and as they trust in Jesus, the true power of Christ puts to shame the worthless spells and incantations that they had previously practiced. The powerful name of Jesus, the powerful work of the risen Lord, puts to shame any power that was ever had in these magical incantations. Now, so devoted to Jesus are these new Ephesian Christians that they burn their magic books in public. There's a beautiful painting uh, that, uh, that sits in the Louvre in Paris uh, that is called Paul's Sermon at Ephesus. And in the picture, uh, it, it uh, uh, depicts Paul standing uh, atop a, a series of steps preaching to the people as there is a pile of books uh, set ablaze in front of them with one man on his hands and knees blowing on the embers to stoke the fire even hotter. Books of any kind 2,000 years ago were extremely valuable and expensive to procure. Books were not cheap because they were not common. The printing press had not yet been invented. But sorcery texts, like the ones that we see referenced here in this, text, in this passage, were even more valuable because they weren't just any kind of books. These were magic books. Luke says that the total value of the dark arts books that were burned that day by new believers in Christ was, uh, came to a total of about 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, if the coin that Luke is referring to is the Roman drachma, that would be the equivalent of one day's wage. So 50,000 days wages of books being burned in public that day. The value of the books burned would have been the equivalent of 137 years wages. A modern, evalu- or modern valuation of the same sum would, would come to about $6 million in books being burned. I love books, but I also love a good book burning right? Especially if you're burning the wrong kinds of books, right? Or the right kinds of books, if you will. So you tell me, church, you tell me, were these new believers in Ephesus, were they serious about turning from their sins and following Christ? Or were they just playing a game? Were they putting on a show? Or were they sincerely devoted to Jesus Christ as Lord? You tell me what their actions display. Certainly they're, they're serious, Certainly they are repentant. Certainly they intend to follow Christ with all of their efforts, with all of their being. Those who have been born again by faith in Jesus can do nothing else. They can do nothing else but leave all unrighteousness, to leave all ungodliness behind, to follow Jesus obediently, such that they'll even burn $6 million of rare and expensive, valuable books. Because spiritual awakening is a product of true regeneration, of truly being born again, of having new life imparted to us by the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus. Because true spiritual awakening is a product of being born again, it will be also attended by confession and repentance. 
every spiritual awakening that we have seen in, in the history of the world, true spiritual awakening to the gospel of Jesus, has come and been attended by confession of sins and repentance of the same. So then churches who pray for spiritual awakening must also be those who regularly confess their sin and walk in repentance. Churches who pray for spiritual awakening must also be those who regularly confess their sin and walk in repentance. Sin is like mold that grows best in cold, damp, dark, unseen places like your shower. Sin is also like mold that dies when the light of the sun in all of its glory burns upon it. Awakening and revival of the souls of men and women is the result of having the light of the truth of the Son of God shine upon the darkness of your sinful heart. And because the light of the gospel says that it, is, uh, that, that it is sin that is your greatest problem, the light of the gospel ought not to be shaded from landing upon every corner of our hearts where secret sins and embarrassing sins are most painful to uncover. Dear Christian, dear Christian, be a conduit of the power of the gospel in this church and in your community by bringing your own sins to light. To show to others, not that you're a failure, not that you're a hypocrite, but to show to others the constant redeeming power of God to forgive those sins and to give you strength to walk in repentance. The church that truly wants revival will begin with its own heart and its own need to confess sin and to seek to walk in repentance. And the church that will be revived will be led by a pastor who deals with his own heart and his own need to confess sin and to seek to walk in repentance. This past week, Tuesday night, uh, our administrative team and I had our monthly meeting, I have it every month, to deal with uh, or handle just the business of the church and to make sure that we're administrating all the resources, stewarding all the resources that God has given to us as best as we can. I admittedly was tired. I'd had a rough couple days prior. I came to that meeting already primed to be impatient and in discussing something that really was not a big deal, I made it a big deal. I let my, 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 my anger and my temper win the day. I said things not things that I regret, but in a tone that I certainly regret. In a tone that was not respectful of the, of the seven who sit in that room and who represent you as administrators of the church. I sinned against not just that team and, and against God, but against you as a church on Tuesday night. They represent you, and I don't want to be the pastor that people are afraid to talk to. I don't want to be the pastor who people are afraid to disagree with. I want to be a pastor who's leading us to greater, deeper spiritual life. I want to be a pastor who, who leads us to, to really know what confession and repentance looks like. And the only way I know how to do that best today is to model it for you. I sinned this week in being angry and in speaking out of anger. Admin team, I, I apologize to you Tuesday night, but I apologize to you again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I pray you'd forgive me. Church, I pray you would forgive me for that. And I ask that you would pray for me that God would strengthen me to walk in repentance, that I'd not give in to anger or, or impatience or intemperance, 
like that, but that God would use the passion that he's given me to lead us into greater godliness, to greater Christ-likeness, that we might be even saltier and brighter lights of Christ in the world. True spiritual awakening is attended by sincere confession and repentance of sin. But finally, we see in verses 21 through 41, the longer part of our text today, that true spiritual awakening is also a threat to societal sins. True spiritual awakening is a threat to societal sins. In verse 21, Luke gives us uh, some logistical insights into Paul's ministry. We find that Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to return soon to Macedonia and Achaia to visit the churches we've already seen him visit before, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. And so, in preparation for that journey, he sends Timothy and Erastus on ahead of him to prepare the way. Now, in brief summary, here's what happens from verses 23 through 41. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. You can read it on your own, and the narrative is pretty self-explanatory, but here's what happens. First, a silversmith silversmith named Demetrius, who makes his living by producing silver replicas of the shrine to Artemis, recognizes that the repentance from worshiping Artemis by these new Christians is now going to severely impact his profit margins. People aren't worshiping Artemis anymore. They're not going to buy shrines that are replica shrines of her temple. And so uh, his, his, uh, uh, his, his livelihood is in danger. And being moved by these economic and even emotional factors, he uh, gathers together all these other silver artisans. Uh, those are craftsmen of silver as well. And they stir up a mob in the city who go and grab two believers, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they drag them off to the amphitheater in Ephesus to a sort of uh, a trial by, uh, by public opinion, if you will. This is not a formal trial. Now, um, I'm going to ask Ken, will you go back to the very beginning to those pictures of the amphitheater in Ephesus? This is just because I like to show pictures. So there's a picture of the amphitheater in, in Ephesus as it still stands today. In its day, it sat about 25,000 people. Uh, this, these pictures come courtesy of Karen Pilgreen. And so if you want to know more about Ephesus and what it looks like, you go talk to Karen, okay? But that's the amphitheater that they take these two believers to. And the mob that gathers at the amphitheater gets so big and so loud that eventually there are some who join the mob who have no idea why they're even protesting. Sounds a lot like a, like a lot of protests even today. A whole lot of people shouting a whole lot of nonsense. And the man on the, they do man on the street interviews and they ask, what are you here protesting today? And the usual answer is, I'm really not sure. I just saw a big crowd and came with them. Paul himself, seeing all this happen, his, his uh, brothers in Christ, Gaius and Aristarchus, being taken off by this mob, Paul wants to go with them, but for the sake of their safety, his friends keep him from going. They're like, Paul, you, no way, dude, you're not coming out of that alive. We're not going to even let you get close to it. Now, eventually, this idolatrous mob gets so unruly that the town clerk, who was himself in charge of the administration of the city, has to come out to the amphitheater to calm everybody down. At this point, he's the only one that anybody is going to listen to. And this he only scarcely does. He's only scarcely able to disperse the crowd by saying that they will be subject to Roman punishment for rioting if they don't disperse. Rome was known for the Pax Romana, that is the the Roman peace, that that you could go anywhere within the Roman Empire and and generally expect not to be attacked by bandits on the road, not to uh, come upon rioting or violence in a city. But if there's a city that's rioting, that works against the Pax Romana. And so if Rome finds out about a riot in a city and that the chief administrator of the town can't control the city, well, that city's going to be in a whole lot of trouble. So the town clerk says, hey, everybody, let's take it easy, lest the wrath of the emperor fall upon us. 
And eventually they calm down and they disperse. But here's the point of all of these verses. The true spiritual awakening, because it leads people to genuinely turn from their sins, is a threat to the sins that chiefly characterize particular societies. Now, in Ephesus, this gospel movement threatened the sin and the economy that surrounded the worship of this false goddess Artemis. And it happened without the Christians even lobbying for legislative reforms and new laws or religious freedom. Did you see that? The whole town, all of the cult of Artemis is overturned, not because people are electing particular officials and protesting in the streets, but because they're preaching Jesus. It happened when believers started to actually live out what the Holy Spirit told them was true. But in America and our communities today, true spiritual awakening will threaten different sins and different gods. We don't have a a temple. We don't have a shrine to the goddess Artemis or Zeus or Baal or any of the other ancient pagan gods you could imagine. But we do have other sins and we do have other gods. A genuine and powerful move of Christ in the hearts of repenting men and women, will threaten certain societal sins and will threaten our worship of other false gods. It will threaten the industrial abortion complex. True and a a genuine and powerful move of Christ will shake the foundations of the cult of civic religion and national worship that revolves around politicians and party affiliations. A true spiritual awakening, a true movement of repentance from sin among America's men will cripple the pornography industry and severely hamper the drug trade. The gospel will threaten greedy corporations, church, and it will do all of this without the panic, without the hysteria, and without the whining or the outcry of Christians. It will do all of this with the confident message of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. The gospel of Jesus will transform society because the gospel itself is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, as Paul says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. True spiritual awakening is a danger to the societal idols in cultures and within our churches. So then churches who experience spiritual awakening, churches who will be awakened and revived by the power of God, must be those, will be those who gladly sacrifice their idols for Jesus. I know what you're thinking. I don't have any idols. I'm at church every Sunday. I worship Jesus. I have a Bible in my house. I don't have any idols. It's really easy for us to look at the world and to say, They need to get rid of their idols. Uh, Consumerism, materialism, the idol of uh, abortion on demand, the pornography, those things that we mentioned. It's easy for us to look at the world and say, y'all need to get rid of your idols. It's a far harder thing for us in this room to say, first, I have idols I need to sacrifice to Jesus. That's a hard thing to say. Dear brothers and sisters, if you're longing for awakening in our city, if you're longing for a movement of the gospel of Jesus in this state, revival in our church, you must be willing to go to any cost to publicly kill the stranglehold that pornography has on your heart. If you want to start a gospel movement, you need to begin by killing the gods of social media and cable news in your life. 
Today, take today and gladly nail to the cross, dear Christian, the cross of Jesus, your dependence upon alcohol. Seek the help of others to overcome it. Nail your pride to the cross, Christian. Nail your anger to the cross of Jesus. Take your long-held bitterness, your lust, your job, your hope for a specific career. Take all of these and put them to death that you might gain the presence of the one true and living God. Kill your idols, church. Kill your idols, Christian. Kill your idols and embrace the Son of God, the King of kings. Embrace Jesus in full faith and trust today. True awakening will not happen without it. See in our text that true spiritual awakening is first preceded by the gospel. Awakening never comes where the gospel is absent. It's empowered by God, not by our methods, not by certain people. I can't do anything to bring about awakening in this church or in this world. But Jesus can through me, and I need to depend upon him for all of it. True spiritual awakening is centered on the explicit worship of Jesus Christ and none other. True spiritual awakening is accompanied by confession of sins and repentance of the same. Confession and repentance aren't just something you do one time when you first receive Jesus as Lord. Confession and repentance are daily disciplines of the believer. And true spiritual awakening, true spiritual awakening will, when it is true, threaten the sins of society. It will threaten the idols of our hearts. And true spiritual awakening, a gospel movement, will beckon us to put to death anything that stands between us and devotion to the Lord Jesus. My question to you today, church, is, is this. What are the idols you need to kill to begin a true spiritual awakening in your own life, a revival in your own heart? Revival, the word itself, means coming to life again, which implies that life is not as lively as it ought to be. Some of us need revival in our hearts today. We need to love Jesus afresh and anew today. That begins by killing our idols. It continues by confessing and repenting the sins that we have. It goes forward in praising Jesus for who he is and how he saved us. True spiritual awakening in our hearts leads us then to rely upon the power of Christ. And then in reliance upon the power of Christ, we proclaim the gospel with all confidence that it does indeed have power to save if you want to see awakening in our church, if you want to see revival in our church, if you want to see awakening in our community and lost people come to faith in Jesus, it starts here. It starts today. It starts in your heart and in mine. It starts with us humbling ourselves and asking Christ to forgive us of the things we need forgiveness of, of seeking to love him more than anything else in our lives, and not just saying we want to do it, but acting upon that, acting upon it. Brother, sister, fellow Christian, there are things you need to repent of today. There are things I need to repent of today. There are things that yet stand between my heart and Christ that I need to nail to the cross and to kill. You need to do those too. You need to kill those things too. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. I invite you to come kill the idols of your heart today. Nail them to the cross. Sacrifice them on, uh, on the altar of your life that Jesus might reign supreme in your heart. Dear friend, you might be here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't yet identify yourself as one who has trusted in Jesus for salvation. Maybe you're depending, maybe you like Jesus a lot. You've been in church many years. 
but you're depending on your own works and you being a better person to be forgiven of your sins. Let me tell you today, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done all the work for you. He died for you in your place. He rose from the dead to give you a right relationship with God. It is him you must trust to be made right with God. And so if that characterizes you today and you want to be right with God, you begin spiritual awakening, revival in your own heart by trusting Jesus today. By saying to him, Jesus, I cannot do it on my own. Not only am I tired of trying, but I know that I can't. I need you to do it for me. I need you to be king of my life. I need you to be master of my heart. Lord, I'm trusting you in your death in my place, your resurrection from the dead to save me. I need you, Jesus. Maybe that's the confession of your heart today, the profession that you need to make. You need to tell somebody about that today, friend, if you're trusting Jesus that way and you've never done so before today. I'll be standing here at the front to pray with you, to counsel with you, to encourage you in your, your new walk with Christ this morning. Please come, take my hand. Let's, let's talk this morning. Let's make time to talk throughout the week about what it needs to take, for, or what it is for you to follow Christ. Friends, whatever it takes today, Do not let this kind of spiritual awakening that we see in Ephesus pass our church and our community by by being so proud as to not get out of our seats to publicly say, Jesus, there are things that I need to give to you. And I can't be a confident witness. I can't be a compelling witness for Christ. I can't be a compelling witness for you, Jesus, until I give those things up. Don't let your pride keep you in your seats this morning. Respond in faith to the Lord. You can come pray at the steps. Come pray with me. Grab somebody next to you. Kneel in prayer at your seat, even as we sing. Whatever it takes. But let's, let, let, let's allow God to move among us by getting ourselves out of the way, by looking to Jesus, by having confidence in the power that he supplies. Let's pray.